So I mentioned Galatians 4. So if you will join me in Galatians 3. So why? Well, it's hard to start in the middle of a book. Agreed? I mean, you start in the middle of a letter. And I think we can catch the context just by taking a look at verse uh, chapter 3, verses 24 to uh, 29. Galatians 3, verses 24 to 29. What's been going on in the intro to that is the churches in the region of Galatia had the people had come into a relationship with Christ. They, 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 they were introduced to the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for their sins, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and, and he offered forgiveness in new life. And they, many of them received that truth. They're like, yes, okay. And so then as they got started, others come in and say, yeah, that's a good start, but now you got to do this and this. So it was the gospel and then the add-on. And as I've said, there's no add-on to the gospel. Any add-on is making it not good news anymore. Now it becomes something you have to do to try to keep it. And so they had crept in and were teaching them that you had to do all these other things. And, and so God uses the Apostle Paul as an instrument to bring his truth to the people so that they would realize that there was a purpose to the law. There was a reason for what we call the Old Testament. And we can see it here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 or 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So it's really simple. It's just, listen, the, the point of the law was to show you you can't be fully lawful. You can't obey all the demands that would be required to be righteous like God. And in a sense, God says, listen, I'm just going to condense it for you. I'll give you the top 10, knock them out of the park. You can join me in heaven. Well, the problem is no one can fulfill even those 10 commandments. Those were a revelation to help people realize, I can't arrive. This just shows me that I'm actually in need of a savior, which is what this whole thing was about. That the point of the law was to show us that we needed God, that we needed his forgiveness. So he goes on to say there in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And since you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's really amazing because he shows the purpose of the law and then shows how you're knit together through the faith of Abraham, and he'll tie it all together, and he actually did a little bit in the previous chapter. But now what we're going to see in verses 1 through 7, he explains the point that was made. He basically uses this analogy that we can relate to. A child, say a child of, I used this example earlier, of, of J.R. Simplot. J.R. Simplot's a local rich guy, you know, passed away, but nonetheless. A child of his has the inheritance coming. He has all the power, but not yet. Because a six-year-old doesn't get to write $30,000 checks to impress a school teacher. You know what I'm saying? What way is that? Because they're, under, they're being trained by adults, by, by whoever's in that position of, of you know, teaching and training. But when that child comes of age then that child is able to exercise adult responsibilities. 
And so he uses that, which they would get in Roman culture. They get in Jewish culture, Greek culture. We get it. Like, oh, it's kind of like this. The law serves the same purpose that this person training a young child would serve. That child has full inheritance, but has not come come to maturity yet. So he uses that in the first seven verses. And then we are going to focus our attention on verses 8 through 20 today. Verses 8 through 20, we're going to see a very interesting thing. I find it very encouraging because we see not only him addressing the reality of the overemphasis of rules, we see embedded in this is the truth of relationships because we're going to see how the relationship Paul had with the people that were in the churches in Galatia And how that relationship was strained because somebody else was trying to rip them off and put heavy burden upon them. So let's just read it and then we'll come back, catch it a verse at a time, beginning in verse 8 of Galatians chapter 4. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Verse 12, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but not for good. Yes, they want to exclude you that they may be zealous that you may be zealous for them. Verse 18. But it's good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. We see in this text Paul addressing. Um, some awkward, some challenging. He's kind of having to confront an issue that's come up. And it's not because he wants them to follow him. He he sees because God has given him the insight, given him the knowledge of the word. Paul sees this is really going to end. It's not going to end well. This is going to be a bad scenario when they start relying upon their their own work. So let's just grab verse 8. Speaking of, you know, this is who you were. Before you encountered Jesus Christ, you serve yourself in whatever manner you determined. This is not just a first century truth. This is a reality. Agreed? This is true in every generation of humanity since this very first one. I did it. You probably did it. Serve yourself in whatever manner you determined. Vocation, pleasure, education, relationships, money, hobbies or some hybrid of all of those. You know, this is what we did. I know I didn't say this is my God, but functionally that's, I was looking to these pursuits basically like they were gods, able to provide whatever you valued or pursued. And each one of us, you know, we have a different 
details and story, but myself, I would just say briefly, I would have described myself now, back then, before I come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I was a seven-day or seven-day recreationalist because that's what I pursued. That's what I love to do. I grew up here in the area. I grew up in Boise, and and so you know we were not high on the economic level, so to speak, and living a pretty like you know to get by reality. So my dad was just really smart. He just took us kids up camping, pitched a tent. And we had the weekend up there in just an unimproved area. He basically said, if, you don't bleed, if you're not bleeding, I don't want to hear from you. Just go play, catch fish, make sure you take care of stuff. And then, you know, so you're like, wow, that seems kind of rough. No, it was awesome as a kid. You know, both me and my brother, my sister wasn't as thrilled about it, but we, we loved it. And so that obviously carried in as we got older into wanting to do more hunting or more fishing or more outdoor stuff. Not even realizing that as I become a, a teenager and entering into my 20s, I was living for this stuff. It was my identity. It was my pursuit. It was what I, I really thought would satisfy me through life. I was not consciously thinking, this is my God. But that's what was happening. And maybe you can insert yourself in that. And he's saying, listen, before you had this relationship with Jesus Christ, you lived however you live. Notice verse 9. But now... After you have known God, or rather, says, or rather, you are known by God. In other words, you've, you've been brought into this relationship, and, and you're, you're allowing God to lead you and direct you. You're, you're known as a child that will receive instruction, so to speak. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? After you've come into this born-again relationship with Christ, why would you go back to relying on the things of this world? Because that's what was happening to the Galatians. What I would say, or maybe describe as some legalistic, a legalistic person is one that has, they pick certain rules and you're supposed to follow them. So they legally kind of set some framework. Legalistic Jews taught them to follow the laws given through Moses. So because their theory thought, I guess, would be Jesus was the Savior of the world. He was Jewish. So therefore, to follow Jesus, you must obey the Jewish law, which was, is a very errant conclusion because he fulfilled the law, which is really what this letter is about. It's teaching. It's like, well, actually, it is finished. He fulfilled it. Nonetheless, they come in and started saying, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. Kind of like saying Jesus is the starting point. Now you have to do all these other things to stay right with God. So it's interesting because I don't want you to think, and I don't want to you know, in any way perceive that that's what they were going through. You may not have legalistic Jews coming into your life, but you have the same reality. You know, many who have grown up in the church and come into a relationship with Christ, after a while they start attaching certain things to their own relationship with the Lord. Oh, I have to go to church, and I, I have to do this, and I have to give, and I have to serve. No, you don't. You do not. I trust that when you're born again, you'll want to. You'll, you'll recognize the value in it. But if you somehow inadvertently even attach it as a requirement, you're now saying, Jesus got me started, and now i got to finish it, which we can agree is a really dangerous thing. You notice he referred to, why would you go back to the Weak and beggarly elements, these other things. To experience regeneration, 
is a powerful thing. When I say regeneration, I'm referring to literally your, when you received the gospel, the Bible tells us that we were born again when this took place. When, by the grace of God, you recognized your own sin. He revealed it, and as shameful and dark as it is, he didn't reveal it to, to make you cower in the corner, but he brings this knowledge to you and it's almost instantaneously in the moment as he brings us awareness that would maybe cause us to be shamed, he also shows us in the moment forgiveness, that he died for our sins individually. And so we respond to what he reveals. We recognize our sin. We say, God. And then he teaches us what it means to trust him, to follow him. Now, we know how to condense that and and lead in a sinner's prayer or say certain things. But in the moment you're born again, you have a clue. Agreed? You're just like convicted. And now something happens. You agree with God. You have this weight taken off your chest. You don't even know what's going on, but now you want to learn more about who Jesus is. And you're born of the Spirit, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit, God in the person of the Holy Spirit, indwells you. Literally being born of the Spirit means you begin new from the inside out. A new creation. Not a modified version of the old guy. See, your friends will say this. Oh, Davis got religion. Well, they wouldn't say that about you, but they say that about me. You know what I mean? They would say about you, like, well, you know, they kind of cleaned up their act. They're getting the thing of their life together, whatever. Because they think you're doing it from the outside. They only see the external. But what you know is, no, there's something different on the inside. Something powerful, something different has happened. And what you're trying to process and realize is this, your, this power. This was the power of God that no man... No hands, no efforts, no imaginations of men can generate. You cannot produce this. To be born again, born of the Spirit. If you thought about how powerful that is, to really indwell it and literally give you new life. It doesn't compare. It's so much more greater than these weak and beggarly things. The question God God is presenting to the Apostle Paul and he's telling you, and I, I've given you new life. Why would you try to relate to me through these weak and pointless efforts of men? Why would you try that? Now, remember back in chapter 3, verse 3, it was presented this way. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made complete? Are you now finishing this by the flesh? See, Every one of us have to be sensitive to this reality. We can inadvertently just start trying to do things. We're thankful that we're born again. We're glad to be born of the Holy Spirit. But then we can easily slip into, now i got to do these things to maintain that. And you don't have to do it to maintain the relationship. You'll do things different because it's a result of the relationship. Does that make sense? Because you have this love and you've experienced this. you got to guard trusting I don't want to trust in the things that I do. I want to be glad of what he's done, and I want to learn how to live life new, but I don't want to get to where I now measure my spirituality and my closeness with God on my attendance or perhaps my prayer life or my bumper stickers or the Christian radio stations that I have on my car. I want to make sure that it's this, this, this life in Christ that's so powerful. And he's like, man, I, I'm surprised. He goes on to say in verse 10 and 11, as you've seen, you know, you do these certain things, you observe days and months and seasons and years. They're referencing the Jewish 
calendar and various things, of course. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. Let me paraphrase that. He would say, I would think, I'm quite surprised, very concerned for you. I wonder if you were really listening to the truth of the gospel. Because see, we can be born again, born of the Spirit, but yet then we can also choose to do things our own way and start tilting. And, and next thing you know, we're inadvertently more religious than we want to recognize or, or agree to. Let's look at verse 12 through 15 again. Now, as you notice, as he, he mentions to them, and, you, know, I, you know, you guys you know, you have a special relationship. We, we, we have a, an interesting connection, if you would. You know, because of his physical infirmity, he was there, which leads you to wonder, like, hmm, was he going somewhere else? And what we can see from this context, the issue with his eyes caused him to have to stay there longer. You know, th that could happen. You could have a health condition that holds you in a place longer than you planned on being there. Well, it seems to be an obvious issue with his eyes only because he says, you guys would have plucked your own eyes out and give them to me. You were so empathetic, so concerned. They were very loving is what we see in this, this loving, open engagement. Guess what? Trying to live by the law and follow the rules is a form of self-righteousness. Agreed? Self-righteousness ruins many relationships because you impose what your perception is onto other people. And then we'll get into some more details here in a little bit. So, but first I want to say, well, what is this affliction? What is this infirmity? Is there maybe we can see something how it is? Because he reminded them, listen, we interacted in this way. Love was expressed in very real life ways with you guys. Well, what were some of his issues? Just You're sitting here in Galatians. Go to your left if you have a physical paper Bible, so to speak. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I believe this gives us a glimpse of some of the things that are being talked about or being, as he's sharing with this group of churches there in Galatia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, now Paul is sharing. He had seen some amazing things, some phenomenal things, some eternal things, a glimpse of heaven, if you would. And he's like, wow. But he says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Before we go back to Galatians, I want to capture some bonus points, so to speak, here while we're in 2 Corinthians. There's a couple things to consider. You can see how he's sharing at this time. Now, he went through a hardship when he was there with them in Galatia, and he's given us a little bit of insight into his private life, his personal life, how he prayed through that problem. And notice one thing here in verse uh, in tw chapter 12, 7 through 10, there was a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan was allowed for a purpose. The hardship was allowed for a purpose. 
Have you ever had something in your life that seems to be allowed, but you don't want? You don't agree with? You'd prefer there's got to be a better way. This can't be the best way to do it. But see, Paul is sharing this. Like, you know, I, I, I know. It's like the Lord spoke to him. Well, he did speak to him very clearly. There's, there's a purpose here. You know, we sign up. I want, you want. We want to grow spiritually. I just don't want it to hurt. I don't want it to be inconvenient. I don't want it to be uncomfortable. Now, I know I'm not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to say, because I'm supposed to be a pastor, leader, teacher. I'm so spiritual. Like, yeah, I'm just glad I don't have any discomfort. But the fact is, we're human. And we naturally want to say, you know, is there a way this can be done? You remember Jesus' words to the Father? Where the victory of the cross was accomplished was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was aware of what was unfolding and what was coming down. And he said, Father, if there's any means by which this cup could pass from me, if there's any other means by which this could be done, and it's not like he didn't know, but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that's where the victory is accomplished. And it was a model to you and me. So we see Paul going, I understood that it was allowed for a purpose. Your hurt, your loss, missing loved ones, all the different things that encompass all this. You know, as hard as it is to reconcile, faith teaches us that God allows things to happen for a purpose. I'm thankful he doesn't tell us what the purpose is. Because honestly, I don't know that we would agree with him. I don't know that we could receive such a deep truth and a transforming work all in one statement. And so he teaches you and I to go by faith and to trust him. So there's this issue, this trial was allowed for a purpose. We see Paul pleaded his ideas. I'm sure he had some, what he felt was his more spiritual position, you know. I don't know if it was on the knees or in full praise God mode, or somewhere in between, you know, whatever it was, he pleaded three times with as, in, as much as he could determine, which was, was, that was relevant communication with the living God. He put his all into this conversation, this persuasion. He pleaded three times, God, is there some means by which this can be a God? And notice what happened. He pleaded his ideas, yet he surrendered to God's ways. So important, agreed? I think it's important that we learn to plead. We learn to open our heart. Isaiah was encouraged to come now. Let us reason together, you and I. Thus saith the Lord. But he also had to surrender to God. And Paul, in this situation he's referring to, he's like, okay, this is what I think. This would be awesome. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There's, it's so important that we learn to surrender to God's ways, even when we don't fully understand the purpose or all the things that are unfolding. Number three, Paul received what Jesus said. You can hear what someone has to say, but you may not receive it. You can get instruction and you may agree with it, but you may not do it. Agreed? There's many people I know. I, I've had this conversation. I look back on my life. I've had time in, times in my own life. Well, I'll receive a word from the Lord, but I won't do it because it's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. It's too convicting. Or this is the one that most frequently comes about. Well, nobody will know if I do or not. See, you can fake being a Christian really well. You can fake obedience really well to everyone except who? 
the Lord, the one who matters to the most. So it's like Paul received what Jesus said. My grace is sufficient for you. In these challenges, my strength will be made known. It will be complete more so in your life. And maybe summarize it in a very straightforward, hopefully kind way. When, when he says these things, my strength is made perfect in weakness. You do better when you completely trust me. When you've got no other options, you know where your strength lies. And I, I'd like to say that's not how I am, but that's how I am sometimes. Sometimes I'm so stubborn and so bullheaded into my own journey that you have to say, listen, Dan, you, when you trust yourself, you make a mess. And I have to say, yeah, yeah, I do. Learning, okay, Lord, I don't know how to trust you. Show me how to do this in this situation that you, I experience your strength. Lastly, so I mentioned the, the thorn in the flesh, this difficulty was allowed for a purpose. Paul pleaded his ideas as number two, yet surrendered to God's way. Number three was Paul received what Jesus said. And the fourth thing is Paul did not have a lack of faith. I connect this because even today, too frequently, there's teaching that if you have enough faith, you will be healed. And this is a real problem with that principle. Because Paul's not deficient in faith. Can we agree? I mean, I, I, I try to walk by faith. I've seen progress in my life. But I'm nowhere near this man in, in, in commitment, in surrender, in focus, in faith. And here he's still dealing with an issue. It was not because of his lack of faith. It was because God was doing a work. And so when, when someone says, this is one of the meanest teachings I've ever heard, seriously. You just got to have more faith. And if you have enough faith, then this will work out. And so if you have enough faith, it's going to happen. And I get it. We walk by faith. I do believe he heals. I, I get that. But if we put the emphasis upon mustering up faith, then when someone can't muster up enough faith, we've undermined their faith. Correct? We've said to them, you must not have enough faith. And they walk away defeated, even more discouraged than and carrying a greater weight than they walked in with. It's much better to be saying, you know, I'll pray with you. We'll see what God will do. Maybe, maybe he, his will will, it will be that he will heal you. So I say it because Paul didn't have a lack of faith. A great man of faith, a man that said, you know what, God, if you're going to, I got to carry this infirmity, if I've got to deal with this difficulty, if I'm going to be buffeted, brought into submission, it's because I need it. And it's because I trust in you to do it. And, and so here we go. Let's jump back to Galatians because he was praying just while I was talking that God would make time stand still. And uh, didn't. So I got to, by faith, <laughs> move along. Galatians chapter 4, verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So here's reality. We see through these previous verses there in chapter 4 that the people were very gracious and very kind and they were willing to recognize, man, this guy has an issue with his eyes, which if you've ever had some of those you know, conditions, they're really painful many times. Not only are they unsightly, so he'd be teaching with like eyes all red, maybe oozing, but then your eyes, you know, when you sleep, they need to do something, right? Like they need to do nothing. But when they, don't, when they don't blink and there's pain and irritation, you then start experiencing sleep deprivation because you can't sleep. And there's just, it's compounded. And then you're like, you ever seen somebody when they, somebody when they have, haven't slept well? 
I mean, you can't get enough makeup on to cover it up. So here he got this compounded problem going on, and, and yet they treated him, they were so kind to him. They would, they would have given their own eye. What a loving example. What, a, what, you know, what, a, what unity there was. And now he's saying, you know, in verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy? See, love comes first, but sadly, self-righteousness chokes out the action of love. And when I say self-righteousness, I mean responding to your own form of a type of legalism. I'm saved by the gospel, and now I do these things. And someone says, well, actually, could you reconsider that? No, you don't know what you're talking about. Do, do you know what I'm referring to? Where then, it, you know, truth is often uncomfortable, even awkward. And yet truth is important. Paul's presenting truth and mercy. Truth on its own can be harsh and abrasive. Mercy on its own can be weak and, 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 and fluffy. But God has said mercy and truth together, where he's in mercy saying, you guys, you, I know how you engaged with me. I know how we, how we related. And now because you are aware of that, I'm aware of that. The truth is you, you're going to get off course. He reminds them of the love and what they'd showed to him. And yet he has to tell them, you're going off course. When you speak mercy and truth, some will not receive it. As a matter of fact, even though you show empathy and kindness and truth, some will turn from you and even turn on you. Most frequently, when someone turns from the Lord, they will turn on other believers. Because what happens in my own mind and observation and experience is there's this turning from the Lord, a justification by whatever logic or issue it is. And so then anyone who's not joining them is actually an irritant because they went this way. And then you say, well, yeah, but come on. Like, don't tell me what to do. You think you know everything. And all this different kind of weird dialogue unveils or unfolds. Paul knows this. He experienced it. We see in verse 17, they zealously court you. These people want you on over here so they can treat you like a trophy in their own little effort. And, and, and they're really trying to take you away. It says, you know, it says that they, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for the Lord. No, no, zealous for them. It's truly a demonic element. Um, Satan's tactic is to get people to use the word of God against the body of Christ. Have you, have you thought about that? His tactic is to get, it, get you, get people to use the word of God against the body of Christ. Now we know that to be true because he did it in Genesis. He tried to use the word, has God not said? He tried to distort or deceive Adam and Eve. We know he's done it within the church. We know he did it to Jesus himself at that time of temptation. It's a tactic he will use. And he, it's a tactic that works really well contemporarily. To get someone to think, okay, well, this is what it means, and this is what I get to do. And, you know, to get people to interpret the Bible in a way that appeals to their opinion. That's basically to divide and conquer. Not according to truth and, and really counsel and reason. Because what I've observed in the last 30 years, when someone's tilting this way, they reject counsel, and then they find someone else who will support their opinion then they blame the previous advisor. You know what I'm saying? It's the very strategy of Satan to bring division within the body of Christ. 
And Paul experienced it. If you've read through the Bible, you know he mentions a guy by the name of Alexander the coppersmith who did me much harm. He's been through this. I think maybe there's a reason why he's even saying, hey, this is, you got to deal with this. There are many false teachers mentioned in the New Testament. And I believe we should be wise as serpent, gentleness does. We should be aware of the age and the time we live in. The Bible tells you and me to reject a divisive person. Someone who's bringing in division and sowing this discord, you have to say, okay, hey, listen, let's just call it what it is. Let's deal with this. And if they then turn on you, well, just stay the course. <laughs> because the last thing you want to do is be drawn into that. Now, let's consider zeal in verse 18. It's good to be zealous. Zeal is that element of energy and uh um, passion and comprehension and, and focus a little bit, like zealous. Zeal with humility is a good thing. Zeal with love is a good thing. Zeal with wisdom and understanding is a good thing. Zeal with true surrender to our Lord Jesus Christ is the best thing. For it encompasses love, humility, wisdom, and understanding. So it's so important that we recommend, I want to be zealous for the Lord, surrendered to him, that he could lead. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. It's a very endearing, a very gracious, loving statement. Paul was not looking to straighten them out. He was longing to help them out and build them up. So he says, my little children. Really, it's a fascinating thing because he could have got real firm, wouldn't you? Don't you think? Listen, you punks. Not you guys, but I mean, Paul could be saying, like, listen, like, just come on. And, and really, maybe more assertive because we could lean that way, and he may have been that way when we see the next portion, which tells you and me, I would like to present, be present with you now to change my tone. Like, yeah, like, I, need to, I need to get firm with you. But the term, my little children, actually directs us, I believe, to see he actually was not getting up in their face. He wasn't getting real firm and aggressive. I believe it's an inviting, appealing, soft, yet firm voice rooted in love. It's like, guys, come on, seriously. Look at where this will take you. I would like to sit down with you because I've, I've seen you grow. I've seen you commit your life to Christ. I've, I've seen you making progress. And I'm concerned that you won't be formed into his image and likeness, conformed to, the, to Christ as he would like you to, to be, as he would call you to be. I'm concerned about that. And isn't it interesting? Because that's the way God works. He doesn't finger point. He doesn't put you down. He doesn't get up in your face and say you're failing. He says, come now. Let us reason together, you and I. Let's, let's work this out. And when we started this series in Galatians, I mentioned to you each week, I'd mentioned three things. And you may have remembered, there's the truth, the trial, and the transformation. So this, as I'm wrapping it up right now, the truth, I would draw it out of verse 26, because I believe that summarizes what we are dealing with here in chapter 3, and it reads this way, for you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's the truth. They're all sons of God. And he's saying, listen, let's not be drawn apart into legalism. Let's be drawn together in the unity of Christ. Let's recognize how to work out these various things because they're really important. The trial was they faced the problem you face. One of your greatest problems that you face, that every Christian faces, one of your greatest problems is learning to know his voice, his ways, and his word. 
See, we can grab onto one or the other, but really, what is the Lord saying? And, and you have to work through emotion and dreams and aspirations and perceptions. And it's not, it's not as simple. It's just like, oh, the, and sometimes, oh, the Lord's leading me to this. I've heard so many times, the Lord's leading to this. And then when it comes apart, now the Lord's leading us to this. Well, what, when did he change his mind? Well, maybe you spoke out of place. It's much better to say, God, I don't get it. I'm, this is my journey. I want to know his voice more. I want to understand his ways. I want to know his word. And all my getting, I want to get understanding. And all you're getting, get understanding of your relationship with Christ. The transformation is summarized best in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, is this exhortation to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's, uh, we're going to take communion today. Communion is a um, practice, if you would, that, that God had set in place. Jesus himself gives specific instruction to Christ's followers. As the worship team comes up and they're going to uh, lead us in worship, we'll prepare our minds and hearts for the awareness for the realization of the great love expressed through Jesus Christ. This is great love. It's phenomenal. It's, it's almost like too much to comprehend. That God would come as a man, live a sinless life, lay down that life as a payment for sinners, endure the cross, be put in a tomb as dead, rise from the dead, ascend bodily into heaven, conquering death and hell, and he would do that for you and me. That's just mind-boggling. Will you stand with me? And we'll pray and then carry right into a song of worship together. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this day. We thank you that you bring clarity and understanding. You bring insight to your word. But most of all, you reveal your love, your truth, the hope that's in you. And so as we would worship by way of music with a song, may you prepare our hearts even more so, God to realize in a very moving and real way the love that you express through your body, through your sacrifice, through your victory. God, help us to understand it even more in a, in a way, God, that we just are drawn closer to you, grateful and thankful for who you are. And so we sing this song to you, Jesus. Mm -hmm.